Welcome back once again to the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast. This is John, and this is a very special one-on-one interview episode with my friend Sarah Paticha. Sarah and I worked together in corporate world many years ago, reconnected again, working on some veterans programs together, and found out a few months ago that Sarah was writing a book about her time at the U.S. Military Academy. The book's called West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. Sarah was one of the early female graduates of West Point, and I think her story is fascinating. I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. I hope that you will check out the book. It is out today when the show is launched. And take a look. The information will be in the show notes. But again, sit back, enjoy the conversation, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Sarah, welcome to the HR Social Hour Half Hour. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be here with you, John. I, you know, I, I mentioned in the introduction, it's it's really cool to to know somebody and to have worked with somebody like you and to have this opportunity now interview you and, and help you promote this new thing you're doing, which I think is absolutely amazing. So I'm going to get right to it. What led you to write this book? Well, I think I have been wanting to write about my experience as one of the first women to graduate the United States Military Academy at West Point for some time. But I think what really prompted me was I was asked to be a keynote speaker for a women's leadership group out in Dallas about a little over a year ago now. And they had chosen me over other speakers because of this unique experience of being a West Point graduate. They wanted someone that could come in and speak to an effective leadership philosophy based on the challenging background. So I guess I kind of fit the bill. I thought, you know, I have written reams and on leadership, diversity issues, veterans issues, as you know, John, for many years. And so I thought this is kind of exciting because I need to really think about my West Point experience in light of a leadership philosophy. And then as I began to prepare the presentation, uh, just all these stories came back to me. How could I not talk about the leadership experience and my philosophy without talking about the the incredibly difficult uh, situation on the first day that you uh, attend the academy called our day, our reception day, where they take someone with no military background and they get you in a uniform and they teach you how to salute and how to march and you put on a parade for your parents. How could I not talk about some of the animosity that I felt as a just a, a young teenager in a 200-year-old male bastion. How could I not talk about some of the interactions that I had with not only my professors, but the male cadets, as well as my own family that didn't quite understand what I was doing? And so as I wrote all this, I realized that was the essence of the experience. It was those stories. So what came about in this book was writing a series of stories that taught leadership principles, principles I believe can help anyone. And after I got done with my presentation, I was amazed that these women responded in such an amazing way. I mean, the woman sitting close to, to me said, wow, I mean, wow. And so I made my way back to the airplane and I began to reflect on the day and I thought, you know, I haven't told some of these stories to my own daughters now, all in their 20s, now pursuing their own careers. And I thought, why haven't I shared some of these tenants that I learned there? And then I began to think about my clients 
and um, colleagues that have dealt in difficult or very challenging circumstances, and I could teach them some of these principles that I had just laid out for these women. From that came this idea, you need to write this down, now is the time. And so last February, after I finished a long um, contract with someone, I, I put a lot of focus on this. I had located a book coach and I began writing and it all came together fairly quickly. I mean, I started writing in February and I was done by May, probably because I had those years of experience of learning and development and organizational development. I knew how to write. I knew how to put the tenants together. But what was fun was reliving some of those stories. And some of them are funny. Some of them are sad. Some of them are really going to make you mad. But that's what came out in my writing. And so that's for the impetus is really in that speaking time with those women and realizing this is going to resonate with audiences, not just women, but anybody that's felt challenged, um, who's worked in very difficult work scenarios. I feel that they will resonate with the message of my book. Let's turn the clock back a year or two. Mm -hmm. And so before, before you entered the U.S. Military Academy, mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned that you know, you were one of the first women to go through the program. What was the draw or how did you decide to attend to begin with? Well, you'd have to understand a little bit about my family. Um, my parents were both educators. They both had PhDs. And so education was highly stressed in my family. But they also said to me and my three brothers, even from a young age, they told us, you're smart, you're going to college, and you're paying your own way. And so each of us <laughs> had to figure that out. I kind of always had that idea that I was going to have to pay for my own education. And my father uh, was a great promoter of women. In fact, my mother got the job after they finished their PhD before he did. And so he said, let's, I'll support you. Uh, we'll go out to Boston. You'll get the job. I'll get one afterwards. So he was a little, you know, avant-garde for somebody in the 70s to do that, you know, and move your family across and kind of support my mother until he could get established out there. It wasn't surprising that one day, and you know, he read in the paper that the service academies, the National Service Academies were beginning to accept women. And I remember he turned to me and he said, Sarah, it'll be a unique experience for a woman. I thought, you know, I should check that out. And I went up and I went to West Point and I um, decided to check it out. And I could tell it was going to be quite rigorous. And one thing that I admired about the place was it had an honor code, this idea of integrity, service above yourself. And I, at that time, was kind of looking for that kind of direction in my life. That, along with the cross country and track coach being very interested in me, that got me very interested in going. When my dad said, this will be a unique experience for women, I used to remember when I was there and I was getting screamed at and I was being berated for whatever miss something I had done wrong, which was easy to do as a fourth classman or plebe. I used to say, yeah, this is unique. All right. But um, <laughs> <laughs> years later, I really believed that it really made me who I, I am. Talk a little bit about that initial reception. You mentioned mm, our day, our day that, you know, yes. that first, that first experience, <laughs> but maybe talk a little bit about the reception and mm -hmm. with those changing times, you know, obviously mm -hmm. as you, you, you said it, not me, it was a bastion of male, male. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, a male leadership and dominance. Yes. And so, you know, here you are coming in very different perspective and, and mm -hmm. a different gender and everything else. How, what was the reception like? 
I think it was mixed. One of the things that I talk about in the book is giving the background and some context because most folks don't understand that the when the first class went in, I was in the fourth graduating class, that superintendent and that commandant, as well as the secretaries of the Army, Navy, Air Force, they all testified before Congress to not have inclusion of women at the academies. So these are the same people then months later when President Ford signed it into law that they were directed to do it. You can imagine, although they probably had contingency plans to have to integrate women, they were doing it not as someone who was wanting it, you know, so that makes a difference. And so there was a great deal of backlash from not only the the staff that would include officers who were our tactical or our military side of things, but also the professors. But among the male cadets, you kind of expected it. So you kind of go in there totally naive to this, not knowing it, but it would surface in different ways. It might be an instructor that seemed to call on you more often, but you have to understand we're easily identified. For every 10 men, there was one woman. And so we kind of were the two or three that would be in a classroom. And I do remember certain professors, it seemed like they wanted to intimidate you all the more. And I talk about some of those stories there. There were obviously uh, male cadets that made it very clear they did not want us there. Um, I remember when you're a fourth classman, you have to, when the academic year begins, you have to recognize every upperclassman that comes your way. So you'd say, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, ma'am. Good afternoon, sir. So on and so forth as they come near you. And I, re I literally remember walking and having this happen several times, walking across our huge campus. And of course, you can never be late. So you're moving really quick. And I said, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, sir. And I would hear, good afternoon, bitch. Good afternoon, bitch. You know, um, a uh -huh. classmate of mine, uh, she said she heard, stop looking at me, you ugly bitch. And so these wow. were not uncommon things. It uh, depended on the culture of your regiment and your company. It could be worse. But you also were defenseless in a sense because who are you going to report that to? You know, most of our tactical officers were male. And that was the other thing I think the academy could have done a little bit differently is have some more women that we could look up to and form relationships with. Even the upper class women, there were so few of them. We didn't necessarily get to know them on a deep level unless you were on a, um, we called them core squad, our varsity athletic team. Then I got to know some of the women and some of them became kind of models, role models and mentors to me. But some of them were harder on us. <laughs> than the men. <laughs> so you had that going on too. <laughs> but I will say there was always, and I do write about this in the book, there were the exceptions to the norm, the men that took risks to uh, befriend us, took risks to be our advocates. And there were a couple male officers that I write about in the book that were just amazing to me. It was kind of one of those things. So you were, you knew you were living in some animosity. And one of the things a woman had to do to be accepted was be was to be able to hang in there physically. And so I did have that going for me because I grew up in a very athletic family. My mother, you know, she was a PhD in physical education. So from the time I was three, I probably had a tennis racket in my hand and I played with my brothers. You know, when you play a lot of basketball, when you, you know, when you play with guys, you're going to get good. And I even grew up doing chin-up contests with my brothers. 
So I was able to stay in the runs, stay in the force road, road marches. I, I, I literally said to myself, no guy will ever carry my rucksack because you could see how you would be treated if you fell out. If you fell out a run or, you know, whatever happened, you wanted to avoid that at, at all possible. But many of my women colleagues, my classmates, they didn't grow up like I did. And so for them, they may have run, but they never ran these kind of distances. They never had never done a, a road march where you're carrying, you know, a 40 pound rucksack and your weapon and you're going for, you don't even know how long they had difficulty. And so men would think they had it. They were getting over. They were changing the Spartan conditions of the academy. So you heard that kind of animosity toward women. And so you had a choice. You either overcome or be overcome. And I chose to overcome. Did overcome and were very successful. And well, I don't want you to give all the secrets away of the book, Sarah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, some of the major tenets mm -hmm. of leadership that you developed during your time at, right. the, at the academy? And one of the arguments I make in the book is all cadets were stressed. All cadets had challenges. I know even some guys, as I've gotten to know them over the years, I was floored that they had challenges with some things that I never thought a man would have challenges with, such as the indoor obstacle course, which include swinging your body up on what was called the shelf. And it was hard. But I had a friend that he almost failed out of the academy because he couldn't do it. He was a very tall man. That being said, there are certain leadership tenets that I think women had to learn at a deeper level. For example, it can be said you don't learn resilience without having lots of opportunities to be tested in ways you've never been tested before. You grew up as an athlete as a guy, and you were used to some of this kind of very rigorous type of uh, workouts are, for example, the bayonet assault course, and where you're learning hand-to-hand -hand combat and aggressiveness. That's kind of not something women typically are grown up doing. Now, I think the world has changed a little bit. A lot of kids are exposed to karate and those kind of things. This was all new to us. It was hard to be aggressive when you were going after somebody, you know, and learning to fight aggressively. And we had these bugle sticks, cushions on the end where we would slash and smash uh, another woman, for example. And, and I remember my, my roommate and I, we didn't know what we were doing. We started laughing. Of course, we got yelled at because it was seen down <laughs> unreal, you know, like, oh, I'm supposed to hit her on the head. That's just so weird. But, uh, but I think because there was so much opportunity to be ostracized and marginalized, sometimes even despised, that that got you to overcome. Some of the leadership tenets I talk about in the book is this idea of camaraderie, but with the idea that we learned how to work with people that may not have wanted to work with us. And so I talk about learning to understand what was going to be taken to be taken seriously, but also because the academy is so focused on team over self you know, self-aggrandizement, that you had to learn to work with others that you may not even like, <laughs> but you had to learn to do that. I think that tenacity that came out of some of that, I, I talk about in that. And then I talk about the, the guys that really, you gain that certain level of acceptance, and then they really did work with you. They really did 
encourage you at critical times. So I talk about the importance of encouragement and how that formed its way for me. And I talk about a couple different people, but one story I like to tell is at the academy, especially Beast Barracks are the six, seven, the, the seven weeks that you first come into the academy, you're referred as a new cadet and you have to earn the right to become part of the Corps. So you've got to make it through this really intense basic training. What they did is they divided us into three different levels of running groups in correspondence to the colors of West Point, black, gray, and gold, black being the fastest, gold the slowest. Because I was a runner, I ended up in this fastest running group. And so a lot of women couldn't even do the gold standard run. They were slower. Anyway, I'm doing this run, but we don't just run. We run in formation, which means you have to be dressed right, dressed with the person to your right and in the front. So you, you're constantly doing this accordion effect, running really fast to catch up, running behind or slowing down. So it's a much more difficult thing to run in formation than just simply go out for a run. The other thing is they never really told us how long we were running. And there was some psychological things, I think, that were going on there. And when we would run back, sometimes the cadre or the upperclassmen would run fast, really fast. So we're on our way back. And for whatever reason, I might not have slept the well, well the night before, but this is the first time I felt really challenged in, in a run. I mean, my legs were killing me. My lungs were killing me. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make make it or not. And about when I thought, I'm going to be one of those women that fell out. I'm going to go to the back. You know, I was running right next to a classmate. And I remember he sensed I was falling back. And he said, no, you got it. And that's all I needed to dig a little deeper and just hang in there. We made it through the run. Now, the interesting thing about that guy, he could have gotten yelled at for saying something during the run. Didn't necessarily have to come to my aid. But I think he intuitively knew that that's what a leader does. You offer encouragement. And as now almost 35, 36 years later, that man is a major general. So anyway, wow. you know, it tells you that they were teaching us such even in, in some of those more difficult times. And so there were the good guys. There were the people that encouraged you. But I chose myself to model my leadership behavior as an encourager, as one that would get people to dig deeper when they think that, you know, I'm, I'm really not going to be able to do X or Y. Eventually, you made the transition I from did. the military to the civilian workplace. That's how we first met and working mm -hmm. together many years ago. Talk a little about what that transition was like and you applied what you learned uh, mm -hmm. at West Point. I, I guess, too, what was the reception like from civilians or people that don't have that experience? Did they look at you or respond differently to some of the things because of your experience and credentials? Uh, yes. I thought it was very interesting. So my first husband was a classmate. He passed away some years ago. And um, we both decided to get out after our commitment. And I admire all the people that stay in. We just knew it would be very difficult to raise a family with both of us in. He gets his first job and I have my interview. And so he kind of led and we went where he was. He ended up in the papermaking industry. And here he was an armor officer, airborne ranger, armor officer. So I was a logistician. So I actually have skills. <laughs> that are more applicable, one would think, <laughs> right? You know, and right, I remember right. he gets his first job. I get my first job offer and I'm like, oh, 
I'm making 30,000 less than you, you know? And they are different industries, but I was still like, wow, that's really interesting. I remember another job that I interviewed for and the guy looked at my resume, he looked at me and then he said, so West Point in the army, well, you know, you can't just give employees orders. And I thought, wow. I, I, in my mind, I was thinking if he knew the all night maneuvers that we did with my 300 size unit, these huge units, because we were the logisticians, we're the supply chain of the army. So we're always bigger than the combat arms units. And we'd have equipment failures and people that uh, had to go back, you know, because something had happened to them or their families. And we had to set up in all kinds of locations in really difficult weather. And we didn't have any, we didn't lose anybody. We got the mission done. I'm thinking if he thinks that's just me giving orders, he has no idea about our leadership. So I said, you know, I had to make my soldiers understand that they had to do their jobs so we could get this mission done. Everybody had to contribute to make our mission to accomplish what the unit was tasked with. And so it, that's how we got things done. And so I'm trying to describe this to this man and he's looking at me and then he says, how old are you anyway? <laughs> thought, you know, first, he doesn't know how to interview me. And I think he was skeptical, perhaps, that what I was saying was accurate because he probably didn't think, I'm only 5'2", that this little petite blonde probably did all that, or he just didn't know how to interview a veteran. I'll never really know because I was like, I don't think this is the guy I want to work for. But <laughs> but that was a true occurrence. And I have, since launching the book, I've talked to a couple other women that even if they've had military expertise, I mean, some elaborate work, sometimes the civilian employers question, they might assume a guy did it, but they might run up against and have to re-educate the recruiter or the hiring manager. You know, this is really, this really was part of who I am. You know, I think it's something that we still have to talk about and educate hiring managers and recruiters on on what women veterans bring to the you know let, let, workforce. Let's talk a little bit more about that because again, we we were fortunate enough, or I, I certainly feel fortunate that we were able to reconnect several years ago when we were working with uh, the Virginia Values Veterans Program mm -hmm. uh, locally, and yes. you know I, I appreciate the opportunities you had offered me to be able to help out and do some fun stuff that that I enjoy doing. You led the training efforts for that group for some time. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how how you've gone about encouraging employers when it comes to hiring women and veterans and, and how you know some ideas or tips that how can they get better? Yes. Because I think we both agree it is a it is a gap. It continues mm -hmm. to be a gap. Some people do it well. Some people I think they want to learn. They're willing to learn. They just don't really know what to do. What what do you tell those types of folks? Well, I think it begins with an education and the Virginia Values Veterans Program. I mean, you know, I developed the curriculum. They use pretty much my curriculum still. It's the idea of understanding what you get when you hire a veteran. They get leadership training. John, you and I both know that a lot of organizations, they may promote the highest, you know, the best technician or this hardworking individual, but they don't always prepare them for leadership before they give leadership. And so one of the things I always try to educate is when you hire a veteran, 
whether it's an enlisted uh, non-commissioned officer or a junior military officer as an example, they've gotten leadership training that prepares them better than typically someone that might have just come out of college or had a couple experiences in the workforce. They've had really challenging leadership training and education. As an example, you know, I had 80 soldiers for my first platoon. Then I eventually had 300 soldiers under my command. That's a lot of responsibility when you're 24, 24 years old, I think, when I was a captain. I try to educate them first on that's what you get, but anymore, all the services teach such highly technical skills, and that's another benefit to an employer. They've already learned a technical skill that they've had to use in a variety of different locations and situations, which it means that they have flexibility built into their thinking. So, you know, it's one thing to, like my people, repair armaments inside a building. It's a totally different thing to do that in the Middle East with all kinds of conditions. You're getting someone that has had their metal tested. You're getting somebody that has technical skills, leadership skills, and they have an ethic. I mean, the Army and, you know, all the military services teach an ethic of service to others and service to country and service above myself. And so I think they end up being your most loyal of, they potentially could be the most loyal of your um, hires. So again, there's so many benefits to hiring them that uh, they really need to help meet the veteran halfway. Learn enough about the different military services and the skill sets that you can acquire in, in different military occupational specialties so that you're more educated when you interview them. I'm sure over the years you've had young people, you know, young ladies, young men approach you about West Point and mm -hmm. about attending. And I'm curious, especially now, you know, in this day and age, let's face it, I think I'm sure things have improved in a lot of different places, but we also live now in this Me Too world and, mm -hmm. you know, we see things that are still challenges. Young lady walks up to you now and says, I'm really interested in West Point. What do you, what do you tell them about attending? What would you, what kind of advice or feedback would you give them now? I would tell them that I would highly recommend that they go visit the academy so they get a sense of what the academy life is like. It's different than when I attended. They really focus on leadership development. We had to do things like pinging, which is walking very quickly at 120 steps a beat for our first year and eating at attention, which meant you didn't eat a lot. You know, you had to put your food in your mouth, put your fork down, and then chew and swallow. So those things have changed. But what I think they'll be inspired by is how rigorous it is academically, but also in terms of standards of preparing you to be a leader, not just a leader in the military, but a leader for the rest of your life. And so I would tell them to visit, but I would also tell them, do not think that just because you've got good grades, to be accepted, it's about a two-year process. So you better start in your junior year. When I was, uh, they call them military academy liaison officers, I was one. And I went through my training and I remember there was an, a young boy that started when he was nine years old writing to the academy that he wanted to be accepted. And of course, eventually he was. You should start that engagement early, maybe even in sophomore year, because you have to get a congressional nomination. 
Sometimes you get a vice presidential nomination, but that takes time and it is competitive. You will also experience that competitiveness once you're there because you're surrounded with people that were very top in their class, um, leaders, and so on and so forth. So to prepare, um, make sure you've taken all those. Uh, to be able to be accepted, you probably need to take a lot of AP classes. You need to score really well in your SATs or ACTs. And you need to be showing that you have exhibited leadership. So have you been the, you know, on your um, student council or run your your athletic team, been a captain? They're looking for a well-rounded individual. But once there, you will have physical requirements that you must pass. So you will run, you will do road marches, you will have to uh, learn how to do well with a rifle and shoot and things like that. So I would tell people to prepare physically and prepare um, emotionally. It's going to be challenging and prepare intellectually by taking those classes ahead of time so that you can do well in the classes because now you have a lot more options. I mean, we didn't have a lot of options with the classes we could take. We were going to be general engineers and we got a few classes that we called a concentration, which wasn't even enough to be a minor. And so now you could be international relations. You can be an English major. You could, you're still going to take a lot of engineering, but you get more classes. I think in that sense, Having those good classes, um, those tough classes in high school will only make it easier because everything builds from there. Sarah, I've been fortunate with the social hour to be able to talk to several folks that have just written their first books. It's, it's kind of fun to, you know, and I like picking brains a little bit. I guess talk, you, you mentioned that you, you started in, I think you said February and we're done in May. It was a fairly quick process for you, but talk a little bit about the challenges you faced in writing and then you know, same idea of somebody who'd come to talk to you about like the academy. Maybe somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. What do you, what advice do you give those that are considering following that path? I was fortunate through networking to come across a book coach. Now I've been an executive coach. So I'm, I believe in coaches because coaches hold you accountable. They help you navigate this road. So I would recommend somebody look for a, an experienced book coach. And of course, there's a lot of criteria you'd find for that. I think one of the things is, is, and one of the things she encouraged me to do was just write, write. And it was in the series of just writing, writing, writing every day and seeing what came out on the paper that the stories emerged. I was like, oh, wow, that really came, came easily. And, you know, I enjoyed that process so much. The other part of the process is how does it fit into what you want to do with your life? And she worked with me. I've been a management consultant for many years, as, as you and I both know, primarily focused on organizational development and leadership development, those kind of areas. So what, how was this going to fit into what I wanted to do? What I did is I wanted to make the book focused on leveraging the book to start more of a speaking engagement kind of business. And um, it has led to some great connections right now where, for example, I'm going to be a keynote for the Virginia Manufacturers Association. And so what was I writing in here that's going to be for my target audience? The book will, I believe, will appeal to women, but I think any underrepresented minority in the workplace will resonate with um, the stories of overcoming and adversity and learning to think about things a little bit differently. In planning the book, I planned for my audience. From that, what you end up doing is creating some blogs. So people can follow you. And eventually, as I told you, John, I want to get more into podcasting. I want it 
record other West Point women's stories too, because I think that's how you get a very good look at what the experience is like and how it might have changed over time. So I've you know, gotten to know West Point women that are considerably younger than me. And um, some of their stories are very telling. They've seen combat. I did not see combat. So we have another side to understanding what these women and their grit and how they have overcome. And so that becomes very intriguing to me in terms of telling that to other folks and helping people understand that you can gain some of from reading these stories and learning how these women navigated certain situations in their life, how you can do that as well. Find a book coach, understand how, what is that in relation to what you want to do in life? Maybe it's just a goal to just write a book, which is fine. But if you want to do it in relation to your business, understand how the, the book will propel you in that direction and, and be clear about that. Sarah, I think you almost stole some of my next question. <laughs> you talked about some of the things that you're maybe considering, but I think it's great. You know, th this episode is going to release the day the book comes out or you know, officially is going to be on Amazon. So, but now that you've written West Point Woman, what is next? Do you think so? You know, I know mm -hmm. you're going to do a bit of a book tour and you've got yes. some signings and things you're going to do, but you know, as you think about, okay, I've got this and I, and I, I know how it works now considering another book or, you know, without pulling the curtains too far back, what do you think? Yes, I think so. There's two sides to things. There's um, a series of stories that I want to capture from other West Point women, but I think it'll be broader than that because um, you have the whole military women as well. And then through my, um, now that I live in Louisville, through the connections here, I'm beginning to find women that have overcome in other areas. I'm intrigued with the whole concept of resilience. So I think a lot of my effort going forward will really to unmask what we don't know about resilience. I've done a lot of work within emotional intelligence, done a lot of training on that, but to really dig deeper into the whole concept of why do some people, when confronted with really challenging situations, seem to rise above. And I think that could be another book in the, in the works. I got to do my research and I am considering actually getting a, a doctorate and I'm really focusing in that area. And I think some books will come as a result of that kind of research. I just find it fascinating. I'll tell you a quick story it, just to show the kind of people that intrigue me. So I was invited by, as I we said, I'm a natural networker and I was invited by a friend to go to the Muhammad Ali Center here in Louisville. And they have something called I believe it's called uh, Daughters of Greatness. And so they have this ongoing breakfast series and they invite people from all over the country and world to speak. I had the pleasure of speaking to the first female pilot ever from Afghanistan. She spoke and then I talked to her afterwards. Now to have done what she's done, her parents live in hiding to this day within their own country. There are death threats against them. Her name is Nufala Ramani, and she has now gotten asylum in the United States. And her goal still is to be a pilot and to fly for the Air Force, the United States Air Force. And that's going to be a process that she has to attain. But in speaking to her, she overcame so many incredible odds to be able to do what she did that she and I are already in talks about featuring her in one of the podcasts I'll do later this year. But those are the kind of stories that I think are important for people to hear and to capture and to inspire. 
So, yeah, and it wouldn't have happened unless I'd written this book. You see what I'm saying? You know, you, you don't know where these things are going to lead you, but it makes life very interesting and exciting. I wholeheartedly agree. If somebody had told me that we would be talking about you writing a book about your time at West Point, that I was doing a podcast about it uh, a few <laughs> years ago, I think we both would have laughed and said, well, well maybe we would have said what's a podcast, but certainly would have laughed about it. I agree. Well, Sarah, it is it has been a, an absolute joy. And I know I'm going to have listeners that will be very interested in reading the book and, and learning more mm -hmm. about you. They, they don't know necessarily know you now or know how to find you. What's the best way for them to reach you to find the book? And I think you mentioned, too, that uh, you're working with some uh, veteran charities as well as far as with yes. for the book. So talk, talk a little bit about that. So the book is currently available on Amazon for pre-order. It'll be released in the next few weeks. But the title is West Point Woman, How Character is Created and Leadership is Learned. But if you want to reach me, just Google West Point Woman and my website will come up. It's www.westpointwoman.com and it's woman, so singular, and you will find me and you'll find ways to connect and interact with me. One of my purposes at the age, I am older than John. So, you know, when you get to a certain age, you, you really focus. And I think this is part of the veteran in me. We all always want to just keep giving back. And so I want to leave legacy. I want to, I want to benefit those. A portion of all my book sales will be given to veteran service organizations that are focused on the wounded warrior and family, wounded warrior, male or female portion of every book sale, it goes directly to them. There are two organizations that I'm currently working with, Family of the Wounded Fund, which is located in Richmond, Virginia, but really does tremendous amount of work. Uh, people can look them up. And also Active Heroes, which is really suicide prevention, which is located here in the Louisville area. When you buy a book, you're benefiting a veteran. So I do want your audience to know that as well. I will have all that in the show notes. And again, Sarah, it's just an absolute joy to catch up and to be able to share this. And I know I'll get to see you after this show is released. We'll get a chance to visit when you're here in Richmond for a little bit. Wish you all the best and we will talk again very, very soon. All right. Thank you so much. 